Hi, this is Carol, and you're listening to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In our last episode, we spoke with Stephanie Davis from Google on the Economy Southeast Asia 2020 report. And today, we shift our gaze back to China with a report from South China Morning Post. First of all, I'm delighted to have Eugene Tang, business editor from SCMP, to discuss the China FinTech Report 2020 with us. Welcome to Analyze Asia, Eugene. Hello, Carol. Thanks for giving us a chance. Well, we love learning more about our guests here on the show. So before we dive into the report, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? What is your role and responsibilities at SCMP right now? I'm the business editor at the South China Post, which means I run the coverage of all of our business-related news and analysis. I've been a business journalist for a quarter of a century, starting in my native Malaysia. I work in China, and I've been in Hong Kong for the past four years, overseeing our coverage of financial markets, banking and finance, IPOs, fintech, and the broader business sector. Wow, you kind of also answered this question, which which I was going to ask about how you got started in your career. Um, it was the first, I guess, honest and real job after my postgraduate. I was doing my master's in economics, and an opportunity came up in Malaysia. A new business weekly newspaper had been started, and it looked very different and was uh, very interesting. And I have always wanted to be in the media and information business. So I jumped at the chance and I took up a job as a writer at the newspaper and never, never looked back. It sounds like you have gained a whole wealth of experience since. So in your career journey, what are some of the key learnings that you think you can share with our audience? I guess the longer you stay in this business, the simpler it becomes. In journalism, it's all about storytelling. And in business journalism, it's all about telling the story of business and finance and how to make numbers make sense to people. Journalism is a way of analyzing the world and business journalism is just one discipline out of the industry. You can look at the world from a political lens. You can look at the world from science or a sociological lens of analysis. Or you can look at the world from a business lens. And, and that's what I specialize in, I guess. Now, let us get started on this report. We will also try to tell a very engaging story on the China fintech space in the year 2020. First of all, can you give us a high-level overview of, you know, what are the key themes of this report? Well, we're looking at fintech space. Fintech, by definition, is the use of technology to enhance and augment financial services. Now, China is the world's largest fintech market, and we are trying to break down this very complicated and very exciting and fast-moving business sphere into various elements. There's the digital payments, which most people tend to be familiar with. There's online, what we call insure tech, or the use of technology to enhance uh, insurance services. There's the use of uh, digital currency. China was the, is the first um, central bank in the world to recently launch a digital RMB. And there are all 
levels of fintech industry. There's a regulatory tech or what we call compliance tech and so on and so forth. So this is really a, a report that tries to break down the very exciting and fast-moving industry into its various elements. So who are the intended audiences um, of this report? Well, anybody who is interested in China to start with and anybody who is interested in uh, banking and finance and how it looks going forward. Now, there are lots of fintech reports all over the place, across Asia, uh, in the world. But the South China Morning Post, we are the China experts. We specialize in everything and anything about China. So we, we decided to take a deep dive on the China fintech space specifically, especially how people who have visited China recently keep marveling at the, the fact that you can go 24, 48, 72 hours in, in around China without spending a, a single physical yuan in physical currency. And we try to explain that and break this down to, to say, why is this happening? How has the world's second largest economy also become a fintech market of this size? Let's start with some key observations. So in the report, we see that tech giants from China, for example, Alibaba Group, Tencent, Baidu, JD, and Ping'an Insurance are all currently leading in the fintech race. I think we have to first of all remember that all these companies that you have named started life as something different. Alibaba started life as a provider of e-commerce, online shopping, business to business, and then later on business to consumers, consumer to consumer. Tencent started as, uh, or is still the largest publisher of games, as well as the operator of uh, social network in China. And Baidu, of course, is the dominant search engine, internet search engine provider in China. And JD is an online shopping platform. Ping'ang is an insurance company. So all these companies have their own, if you like, captive user group of customers. Alibaba and its online millions of uh, online shoppers. Baidu and its uh, online users of the internet search engine. And all these captive users have since been moved into a financial sphere. And because you've got this big group of uh, user base and you know everything about how they consume, how they spend their time, what they read, what, what they do, their journey from article A to article B, from item A to item B. All these data can become used to predict how they spend money. So that's how the fintech, the tech part of the fintech came to being. All these companies also happen to have uh, online banking licenses. And all these banking licenses basically leverage on the uh, user data, the big data analysis, as well as the uh, algorithms behind the big data analysis, uh, some of which is powered by artificial intelligence to, to predict how they spend money. And I know that not only do they have a presence in China, the global expansion for these Chinese fintech companies have going on for the past few years now. Can you elaborate on how fintech companies from China are helping different parts of the world, especially in broadening financial inclusion? I think the first thing about the fintech explosion in China, if you will, is that China has the two things. One is a huge population base, 1.3, 1.4 billion people. And secondly, propensity to adopt the technology. 800 million smartphones in China and people are adopt to 
technology and apps very readily. They're very willing adopters of the latest and the newest. That enables developers of the apps and the uh, including the fintech apps to compress the timeline it takes for all these companies to take their products or apps to maturity. So, for example, in some elsewhere in in Southeast Asia or anywhere else in the world, in a country with a smaller population, it might take three years to five years for an app to get to a, a critical size. In China, it can happen in a matter of months. And that level of rapid development enables app developers to quickly iterate, to renew and update their applications very, very quickly. And that level of experiment, if you translate that into a broader world, can help make the applications a lot better. Now, obviously, what works in China does not necessarily work elsewhere. China has taken a, a huge leap, the development of uh, and the provision of financial services from your traditional banking, just leapfrog credit cards and checks straight into online payments. Now that level of development might not be applicable to another country where say credit cards or checking accounts are, are more prevalent. So, but what is unique is that what happens in China, that the rapid iteration of technology can lead to a very, very rapid development of the technology itself. And that would ultimately be useful when translated to other countries. You mentioned technology, of course, many times because it's fintech after all. So what are some of the underlying technologies in the space that have helped propel their advances in the past few years, for example, in, in the payment space? So, for example, let's take a look at the uh, small loans. Traditional banking is one where if you want to borrow money, you go to a bank and you say, dear Mr. Banker, please lend me money. Here's my collateral, whether it's a home or some kind of asset where you we should place as collateral. Now, the banks will not lend you money unless you've got good creditworthiness or collateral. But a lot of people, especially the small businesses in many countries, including China, including you know, India and other developing countries, don't have that level of collateral that qualify them for this kind of banking credit. As a result, vast majority of people, in the, especially in the rural areas and small businesses across the world, are underbanked. What technology can do is help banks assess the creditworthiness of these customers through different ways. So for example, Alibaba or Alipay has a bank license called MyBank and it uses the big data analysis gleaned from its hundreds of millions of uh, shoppers to assess how that person, those customers spend the money, their monthly paychecks, X percent of that goes towards paying for online shopping, X percent of that goes towards utility bills or rent or whatever. And from there, you build profiles of all these paying customers and their propensity to pay. And based on that, you can recommend to banking institutions whether or not these people are creditworthy. And as a result, in one year's time, the number of SMEs borrowing on my bank jumped by about threefold to 20 million in, in the space of one year. And 80% of these people were first-time users of microloans, average of about 30,000 yuan. So not huge numbers we're talking about, but you know, just small loans. But that basically in makes banking more accessible and the financial services more readily available to more people. And all that, all that is done through technology. That's right. And you mentioned artificial intelligence, AI, a little bit earlier. How do you see AI influencing fintech growth in China? Well, AI is really a, a means to an end, right? It's a way to help companies or app developers process information 
more quickly and also discover new trends which the human mind may never have thought before. So for again, for example, one of the ways of analyzing creditworthiness is whether or not there's is traffic pattern. You will never think of it, but if you look at uh, location maps and if let's say there's a major highway near your residence or near your place of business, there's a traffic jam, chances are that your business will be affected and your revenue stream over the duration of that traffic jam will be affected. If you're just thinking about it, you probably wouldn't notice it. But artificial intelligence can surface these kind of variables or parameters that you've never thought of and bring that to bear in the calculation or in the algorithm that works out your credit worthiness of a business. So that's out of the box. That's unusual. That's exceptional. And that's the kind of stuff that uh, artificial intelligence can bring to the table. And earlier, you also talked about how China established the first digitally issued currency by the central bank. So I live in China. I'm not sure I quite understand the implications of this move. So can you explain a little bit more about that and then also maybe discuss the state of blockchain technology and how that is enabling this to be done as well? Okay, so you lived in China, so you know that you can go for days on end without spending any physical yuan or coins, right? Everything is done uh, digitally, right. digitally these days. What I some- haven't carried any cash on me for a really long time now, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's so, right. Go ahead. So what the central bank has done is they've issued a what we call digital yuan. If you, if you like to think of it, think of it as a digitalized, digital format of the currency. The central bank classifies it as what we call M0, which is the same as all the currency and notes in circulation, except that it is in digital format. Now, what does that do? What that does is it traces where money goes. So if you get, let's say, paid every month by your employer, and you choose to accept that payment in this digital format, then there will be a path where the money flows from your employer to you, And if you choose to spend this money, this digital format of the yuan, in all your shopping, your restaurant bills, your rent, the path becomes visible as well. Because it it is based on blockchain technology, it's also immutable record. So over time, you start to get a view of how money flows within the economy. Now, this has huge impact for economic policy making because previously or rather currently when the central bank or the government imposes some kind of a monetary policy whether you raise interest rates or you cut interest rates you don't really have a very clear idea of what that impact is going to be not really it's by approximation it's educated guess it's not very precise but imagine if you can see where every single yuan goes from your employer to the employee, from the employee to the restaurant, from the restaurant and on on and on it goes. Where you see every single yuan, then the policy making becomes different. When the government needs to say stimulate the economy or fight inflation or think of any economic phenomenon you need to, this becomes a very, very valuable tool. It becomes data that can be very, very useful. It's also very highly specific because you don't need to require a very blunt tool like the monetary uh, policy or interest rate that kills everything or touches everything, but you need a, you, you can have a very, very specific tool. It may be that this is an economic problem in a particular city or in a particular province, in which case 
you don't need a nationwide interest rate policy to solve that problem. You just need a very specific administrative policy to tackle the issue. So implication, it's still obviously still very early days. Uh, it's just been introduced uh, this year. Four cities in China are undergoing the uh, experiment. So it's still early days, but if it's carried out properly, it could have uh, very far-reaching implications. What are the four cities, by the way? The four cities are Suzhou, Shenzhen, Chengdu, and the new area of Xiong'an outside of Beijing and Hebei ah. province, as well as the venue for the 2022 Winter Olympic Games in Beijing. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I live in Shanghai, so I guess I am not uh, subject to this new experiment, but uh, that would be quite exciting. Some implications I can think of are maybe... You know, it's definitely more difficult for maybe money laundering, and the government will also have a better grasp of uh, the taxes that they need to collect as well. Has there already been some regulatory shifts for the Chinese fintech space as a result? What are some of the changes that has happened uh, this year? I think the first thing to note is that over the past decade and a half, fintech has really been. Little regulated internet economy is really quite new in China, and the fintech space, as we have defined it, has really been happy hunting ground for a lot of fintech companies. The regulators have been debating and discussing rules for many years, but there haven't really been any kind of wide-scale rules of the game, if you will. There are rules specific to peer-to-peer -peer lending. There are rules specific to online lending. There are rules specific to online securities, for example. But there's nothing that covers the entire industry. It's gotten to a stage where certain questions are being asked as to whether and how the industry should be governed going forward, especially when so much of the financial services, from payments to insurance to wealth management, is now all connected in one way or another with technology. What are the risks to the financial system? What are the do's and don'ts? Are there any potential gray rhinos or black swan events that could happen? What if uh, the AI alg algorithm governing the online loans, what if they go wrong? Who bears the risk? All these questions which we currently don't have answers to surfacing. So the, the regulators are beginning to sort of take action and say, okay, we need to slow down. We need to think about these we need to have a debate. We need to discuss what are some of these parameters. Uh, we need to reinfence them. Uh, we need to make a, make sure that whatever happens, uh, whatever goes wrong on fintech, does not affect the entire financial system. And that's what's happening in, in, in China right now. So what are some of the new rules that are already in play that will change the landscape uh, in the next year? Like we say, the, the, the rules are still being, being, being discussed. But one of the things that we do know is that fintech companies that lend money online being asked to put up more capital so they have more skin in the game, so to speak. Because the previous model has been that, for example, a fintech company and there are hundreds of these kinds of fintech companies would analyze uh, loans, uh, credit worthiness, uh, let's say Carol, uh, based on your uh, spending habits and what kind of movies you watch, what kind of books you read, how credit worthy you are. You group this a thousand Carols together and sell them to a bank and say, okay, these uh, thousand Carols are credit worthy. Therefore, you shall we recommend that you lend money to them. So the bank will lend money based on their recommendation. But who carries that risk? Not the fintech company. 
It's the bank. The bank carries that risk. Even if there's 1.5% of that population that defaults, the bank carries that risk. So fintech companies are also now being asked to share that burden, put up more capital. So one of the rules is to put up 30%, the equivalent of 30% of the loans book in capital. So that will reduce the amount of what we call gearing available to these fintech companies and uh, basically make them more accountable to the risks that they underwrite and recommend. So that's one of the many things that are being um, discussed. There probably will be a lot more, like I say, because the industry had been pretty much unregulated for many, many years. So I guess there are a lot of discussions, a lot of questions that need to be asked. We honestly can't have a discussion about the Chinese fintech space if we don't talk about what uh, has been in the news recently, uh, right? which is the Ant IPO that has been halted. It is written in the report that Ant Financial is the most valuable fintech company in the world, sitting at a valuation of about uh, 200 billion USD as of September 18th, 2020. This much anticipated IPO has been stopped for now, in part because of their clash with the financial regulatory body in China. Can you offer your perspective on this issue? First of all, a disclaimer, Ant is an affiliate of Alibaba, which owns our newspaper. Secondly, it's part of that ongoing discussion about uh, what's happening in the China uh, fintech space. Like I say, it's uh, been more than a decade where fintech companies have had uh, been given a freedom to roam and to grow. And a lot of these questions that have been asked have not been answered. So I guess the regulators have decided that it's better to reinforce the barn door, so to speak, before the, the, the horse boats then after the fact. And that's what happened. The end group has been asked to align the business practice to the new regulatory environment. It will be a process going forward for the company and for the regulators to align their expectations and answer some of these questions that, that are very, very important for the future and health, healthy growth of the fintech industry. Thank you so much for explaining all of these more complex issues, but in such a simple, coherent manner. Now, putting together this report because you're a business editor of course you are very well aware of you know what's happening in this space but were there anything that really surprised you you know when this report was produced that you you'd want to share with our audience it's a very fascinating and exciting growth really in in the industry what caught me by surprise is just how prevalent technology has become in the use of in fintech space. There's hardly anything these days that's uh, not touched by technology. And the acceleration and the multiplication effect of technology is quite dumbfounding. We often say that in, in insurance, for example, one of the largest insurers that we, we have in this uh, fintech report, uh, Pingan Insurance, they can access a loss from a fender bender, like a typical highway traffic accident without where, where there's no loss of lives, a simple sort of dent here or a scratch there. They can assess that in under three minutes. That's the average wow. time it takes for a insurance adjuster to assess the loss and the damage caused by, by one of these. It takes me longer to describe this process than it is for them to process it. It's, it's amazing and it cuts across the entire industry from loans recommendations happens in split seconds. Everything, for example, from a fintech company 
that recommends, uh, we, we, we mentioned earlier on the thousands of carols who may or may not be credit worthy. The fintech companies will bundle them, send them over to the bank, run them against a risk and compliance database in the bank, and the bank will come back with a decision to whether or not to proceed with the loan in split seconds. So, and this happens in multiple times over the day. Insurance, healthcare, lending, asset management, almost every aspect of financial services is now usable and treatable, doable via technology. And that's amazing. I don't know. I feel like that uh, a thousand carols are very credit worthy, given the fact that uh, for all of the apps that I'm using, whether it's, you know, um, Alipay or JD Finance or even um, DD, the ride hailing app, they're all trying to lend me money, constantly getting these offers. Well, last question. What do you think will be some of the key challenges for the Chinese fintech space in the year ahead? It would really be to align, it would be an expectation check. It would really be to align what's happening in the fintech space with the broader economy. As we know, the, the whole world's economy is going through uh, COVID-19. The implications and the effects uh, and the aftermath of the coronavirus will be painful and far-reaching beyond most of our imagination. What that means for whether it's the broader global economy or just the Chinese economy itself is beyond our imagination. Now, what's happening in the fintech space, the rapid development in that space has to be aligned with what's going on in the broader world because the risk to the broader economy has risen, the risk to the Chinese economy has risen, and how that happens as a result of fintech uh, or how fintech grows as a result of that um, has to be aligned. Otherwise, uh, if one goes wrong, it could unleash a you know, financial catastrophe that nobody has uh, foreseen. So uh, it really the biggest challenge is really to, to align what's going on in this particular sphere with the broader economy. Very well said. And if our readers are you know, interested in looking at the full report, where can they find that? They can find it on uh, SCMP Research, uh, research slash scmp.com. Great. And last, last question. Can you recommend a book, a movie, podcast, or anything that have inspired you recently? I'm sad to say and sorry to say I haven't been reading many books. What I've been reading uh, most recently is a, a report by U.S. Congress on competition in digital markets. It's a 500-page report looking at Google, Apple, Facebook, and uh, recommendations of a committee of the judiciary on, uh, on, on what to do with these uh, digital giants. It's uh, quite fascinating. Wow, 500 pages, that might as well be a book. And if our audience wants to, you know, chat with you more on these topics, how can they find you? U-G-E-N-E dot T-A-N-G at S-C-M-P dot com. Are you on Twitter as well? I try not to go there. <laughs> I try not to go there as much as I can. Email me or find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I can be found on LinkedIn. That uh, has been my practice as of late as well. But for our listeners, uh, you can always find us on um, Twitter if you want to let us know. For example, do you want to hear another episode on uh, anti-IPO or any other topic that uh, interests you? And Analyze Asia episodes can be found on all podcasting platforms. Now, thank you so much, uh, Eugene, for coming onto the show. I think you told a 
very clear and concise story about the China fintech space in the year 2020, although I'm sure there are a lot of details and insights that uh, could be drawn from um, actually reading the report as well. So thank you again for coming onto the show, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.